Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, listeners and viewers, to episode number 136 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. This week, my guest is the one and only Nick Whitaker, who is our Director of Research and Trading here at Jessup Wealth Management. Welcome, Nick. Good to be back. I'm excited. Yeah. Our always, last one was yeah. really good, so this one should be the same. Absolutely. And that's, then, that's um, the goal. That is the goal. And then later on in the podcast, we have a guest for our financial planning topic of the week. We have Taylor Ledbetter. She is our para planner and wealth advisor here at Jessup Wealth Management. So she'll do that section. Yep. So we're having multiple guests today. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a good episode. The trifecta. That's right. All right. So before we begin, Nick, you want to kick it off with pricing? Yeah, absolutely. As always, as listeners know, we uh, we run through um, some pricing figures for everyone. So. We're going to start with the S&P 500 for the month. We're up 1.46%. And for the year, we're still down 3.88%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average for the month, we're up 1.73%. For the year, down 1.64%. For the NASDAQ Composite Index, we're up 1.51% on the month. And for the year, we're down 7.61%. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 on the month up 2.67%. On the year, down 7.12%. The Vanguard International ETF X the US is up 2.56% for the month and is up 0.1% for the year. Buck in the trend. That's right. That's right. And then our yields right now, and, and all of these numbers, I didn't mention this, uh, I took as of 850 this morning. Um, so your yields are going to be moving this morning with the CPI data. So mm-hmm. inflation we'll, data. Yeah, yep. we'll, we'll change a little bit. But the three month T bill yield is currently sitting at 0.288%. The two year treasury yield currently sits at 1.424%. And the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.978%. Hasn't almost, broke that two yet. Almost to the 2%. Hasn't broke the two yet. I'm kind yeah. of surprised it hasn't, to be honest. Yeah, particularly with the way the market was trending in, in January. And uh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah. All right. So uh, switching into the big headlines and current events, what do you... What do you have for us? Got a couple pieces here, Nick, for listeners. First is used car prices. Now, this is a hot button, uh, especially during the heat or the meat of the pandemic, right? You had a lot of supply chain issues. And what happened to the secondary market prices of used cars? Shot up to the roof. Oh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. It was nuts. So this is uh, what I have to share is after surging through the pandemic as much as 50%, 5 Prices in the used car market showed some easing in the last three weeks of January. Now, Nick, this data is according to car shopping app Copilot, which tracks daily prices at dealerships across the country. And then the quote was, for just about every age bracket and segment, prices reached all-time highs in late 2021 and have started to level off and soften over the past month. 
a potential signaling of relief on the horizon for consumers in the car buying market, said Pat Ryan, the founder and CEO of Copilot. The price of a 2019 model have slid 2.5%. In 2020, we're down on average 4.4% from the high. So adding some real life, um, I would say, uh, opinion to this piece, I'm friends with a gentleman that owns a used car dealership uh, in town here. And the biggest problem that a lot of these people that own these dealerships is they don't want to carry a lot of inventory right now mm -hmm. because they don't want to get stuck, you know, holding a car they bought at the high and then having to resell that a couple of months later when prices, if they continue this trajectory. Right. And so I think you're going to continue to see at least supply on these lots below because in essence, you know, the sentence that was told to me is I'm only going to buy something I know I can sell in two weeks. Yeah, that's interesting to, to think about from that perspective. It really it's is. Almost, it's the inverse of what you know, big box retailers were doing. Exactly. It's the and, exact inverse. So, I mean, yeah. uh, and the reason I want to share this with the listeners is when you're driving around, you still see kind of, you hear this, right? Prices are starting to come in. You would think, okay, supply must be going up. But I think you're going to see a lot of used car dealers that are going to continue to keep a lean inventory and only buy what they perceive that they can sell in a couple of weeks. And I think based on what you're talking about and a couple of things that I'm talking about, one of the themes in here that we're going to talk about in the podcast is going to be almost normalization. I think in, that's a good a way, way of saying it, Nick. Yeah. Is, is that like a fair way that's to a think fair about way of, That's a fair way of kind of addressing kind of the, the point that we're at. I mean, you're going to have reversion to the mean on a lot of this stuff that was caused by COVID supply chain inflation. And even with this huge headline number of inflation that we got this morning, the market is very forward looking. And I got a piece of data next week, and I'll just kind of give a preview. We've seen some of the largest outflows in January in inflationary protected securities. And normally people would buy that and hold them if they mm -hmm. think inflation was going to continue at this rate. Right. And when you have such massive outflows within that sector, it tells me the big institutional money does not think that inflation is going to hang around. Right. Okay. Right. All right. My next thing is a check on the manufacturing sector. Okay. So this one, uh, the data comes from the Institute of Supply Management. Most people see it in the news as ISM. Okay. On February 1st, Nick, they published their monthly manufacturing report for January. Uh, the latest headline number came in at 57.6. As a reminder for our regular listeners, anything above 50 is an expansionary territory from the previous month. What I want to focus on, specifically backlog orders. They came in at 56.4, down from 62.8 the prior month, showing that manufacturers are starting to catch up and the supply chain is getting better, though slowly. And what, what, what's the theme again? Normalization. Normalization. Yeah, yeah things going right. back to normal. Yeah. And so, you know, we have clients that, that own some manufacturing businesses, and I'm starting to get this feel. I don't have the actual numbers, but the sentiment that I'm getting is that they're starting to dig through their back orders. I'm getting that sentiment. Yeah, and, the, and that's 62, that 62 level from the prior month, that's a very high level. You don't see... Above 60? Yeah, no. things cooking like that very often in, in a lot no. of the e economic data. No. Um, and so to connect the dots, listeners, the reason that I'm highlighting this is, you know, Nick, what happens when they eat through that backlog, right? 
And then so at that point, you know, you could see prices start to come back down mm -hmm. and then inflation yep. start to cool. And I think this is part of the market forward looking. Um, I, the market's not open yet. It's 919 on February 10th. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the equity markets didn't react drastically to that hot number today because it is so forward looking. We'll see. Mm, yep. uh, I had not checked the futures yet this morning, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it kind of looked past it. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the, with the volatility in the market, uh, it could go either way. Yeah, and I'm going to say <laughs> at the very end, I'm going to give you know viewers a reminder that I don't think we're out of the woods yet from a volatility standpoint. Yeah, and, and when we talk about another thing I want to just clarify for listeners, when we're saying you know a, a trend of, of normalization, we're not back to normal, but you'll see some charts in this podcast and, and the show notes that you'll get a sense of what we're talking about. We're, we're still working through the supply chain, but you can kind of see, you can kind of see the light a little bit. Yep. Um, so that's kind of what we mean when we're revert, reverting to the mean normalization. It'll take, getting, it'll take several quarters. Absolutely. But we're starting to see the tea leaves of the data pointing that direction. Exactly. That's what we mean. Or, or over to you, Nick. So I only have one current event, big headlines, and it is also... Uh, economic data and it's a summary of the january jobs report so so we're these very, job reports are hot these days i mean hot as in very watched closely by the market they are and so i'm gonna g take a little bit of a deeper dive on this for listeners and just kind of explain the data uh, in a little bit more in-depth fashion than i think we we typically would um, and so for a lot of listeners you're gonna know a lot of what i'm talking about for some you might not know any of it hopefully you'll pick up uh listeners will pick up something that they didn't know as I they go through this. So be fun. this is a summary of the January jobs report. Uh, a lot of this data I got from trading economics and then the actual BLS Bureau of labor statistics.gov. Okay. Um, so what is the actual data? You'll see non-farm payrolls, or you might see employment situation summary. That's what is actually called on the BLS.gov website. Okay. It's an employment report that's released monthly on the first Friday of the month. Correct. So last uh, last Friday would have been the fourth was this January uh, report that we're talking about. So how is it collected? Uh, as I mentioned, it's the U.S. Department. It's the Bureau of Labor Statistics Department, and they have a program that's called the Current Employment Statistics Program. They survey about 140,000 businesses and government agencies, which represent almost 500,000 individual work sites. And they survey them in order to in, uh, in order to obtain industry data on employment, on hours worked, and on earnings of workers. Uh, so why is that important? It's yep. important because it's it's hard data on the economy. Yep. Um, you know, you have uh, employment changes by industry. You have average hours and and earnings. You have the unemployment rate. You have duration rates of unemployment. Um, you have so many different pieces of data in there, um, and it is, it's, it's hard data in that it is coming directly from a survey, factories, et cetera. Um, similar to the manufacturing data that you just went through, that's, that's a harder data. Sure. Right? Um, so, again, why is it important? The stock market looks at this data really closely, um, as you mentioned. You know, yep, the stock month. market looks at it, the bond market looks at it, the U.S. dollar can react to it. Um, so it's important from a reactionary point of view. It's important to get an understanding of how the economy's going, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I would right? say it's one of the most important hard economic data points that is looked at by Wall Street on a yeah, monthly basis. Particularly on a monthly basis. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so what did this past month tell us and why is it in the news? Because there's, there's quite a bit of buzz around it. Yep. Um, so the U.S. economy un- unexpectedly added 467,000 payrolls and or jobs in, in January of 2022. And that was much better than the market forecast of 150. Of hundred and fifty, just 000. blew it out of the water. Blew it out of the water, and that happens every now and then. But this one was was looked under a, a particular lens because of because of COVID um, and and Omicron in general. Um, so you know, leisure and hospitality was strong. Retail was strong. You know, wages increased; they're up five point seven percent for the year. Unemployment ticked up 0.1%, but it's still at 4%, so still in a, in a strong range. The labor participation rate uh, ticked up a little bit to 62.2%, and it was hovering around 63 in COVID. So you see what I'm talking about with the normalization. normalization. Exactly. So um, the, the reason that, you know, you saw a couple headlines, CNBC talked about it, and you know, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, you know, pick your source, but there were pretty big headlines on it. Now, these January figures, they were a big surprise, as I mentioned, because of the Omicron variant. I mean, the White House even came out and warned that the data might be weak. So the data wasn't weak. The data was really strong. Everything looked good. So, you know, the major takeaway being what? Uh, the economy is still strong. The economy was resilient in January, despite Omicron concerns, despite a lot of people calling in sick and and being required to stay home from from getting a positive test, um, and then probably the more important part and why the the markets were looking at it so closely, and you know even the stock market kind of sold off the day before heading into it, and then recovered a little bit um, the, on the reaction. There was nothing in the por- in the report that would dissuade the Fed from hiking rates, right? Yep. And that's what Wall Street was really looking for. And even furthermore, what the street's a little concerned with is that in March, when the Fed comes out and most likely hikes hikes rates, as the market anticipates, that not only will they hike a quarter percent, they'll hike a half percent. It's possible. It's possible. And that this report was strong enough to where that is a possibility. And you kind of see that in the news and, and people considering that, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't historically that's not um, not a normal move that's not a normal move so historically i would i if it's just my opinion i don't think they're going to do that but there is talk that that this data was so strong they could justify it. they could justify that yes with this kind of strength in the data so a little now, bit of a deeper dive than we usually do but i think this is good for listeners and yeah. my one comment i want to throw out there is the piece of data i pay a lot of attention to besides the headline number of payroll gains or losses is average hourly earnings gains. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not sure if this statistic is still this figure I'm about to say, but it's gonna be close. What I've heard is a 10 basis point, which would be 0.1% gain in average hourly earnings in a month, has the economic effect on the American economy of about 200,000 new jobs. And what I don't think is talked about enough is you see all these headline rates, but what's not talked about is, you know, some months you'll get 10 bips, 20 bips in average hourly earnings gains. Mm -hmm. And that has a big domino purchasing effect across the U.S. Absolutely. And so I just want to throw that out there that that's something that I pay very close attention to Mm -hmm. besides the headline number. 
Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think that's a that's a really important piece of the data that's released that the news kind of shuffles under the rug a lot of the times. You don't. Yeah, you they don't, don't really talk about it. I don't think don't, they understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to move on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. Nick, you want me to start? Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to go first. Uh, one of my favorite data points for stocks: high yield bonds. Okay. So um, this piece of research, Nick, is from Bespoke Investment Group on January 28th. I have a chart associated with this that shows that high yield spreads have widened, but still remain relatively low to um, uh, where they've been historically. We have a chart about this, okay? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm going to read this narrative from the Bespoke note, and then you and I can have a little roundtable about it, okay? Sounds good. So starting off, this is what Bespoke says. When spreads are falling or low, equities are generally in good shape and unlikely to suffer major calamities. High yield spreads tend to be much more sensitive to the outlook than equities because they're more risk adverse investor base and lower position in the capital stack. As shown by the chart, over the past year, spreads have narrowed to the tightest level since prior to the global financial crisis. Spreads have been on the rise since. The recent bout of stock volatility has seen a widening of yield, high yield premiums, risk premiums, that is worthy of note. That said, spreads have not taken out 52-week highs, and compared to other sell-offs, and they're being indicative of the market sell-off in January, Nick. Mm -hmm. So compared to other sell-offs in the post-Great Financial Crisis period, so post-2009, the current level of spreads are tight and not an indication of declining stocks. Mm -hmm. So the reason I put this in there is every, I think, true money manager has data points that they put more weight into others as their version of forward-looking indicators, mm -hmm. right? And everyone, when you start slicing and dicing the bond market, right, you're going to have various ones that other managers prefer. One for me is, and I know our practice, we definitely keep a close eye on high yield bonds and their correlation to, um, you know, investment grade as an example. Mm -hmm. And this is just something I want to put on the radar because I might have a piece in a week or two about this. But this is something that definitely I think needs to get more attention. Any comments on your part? My comment, like most of my comments, it seems on the podcast is that the chart does a lot for me. Right. So I encourage I encourage listeners to check out the chart because you can really see what we're, what we're talking about when you reference it to 2008 and you kind of see that that pop that we had recently. But it's back down into a, a solid zone. Yeah. It's like, you know, they're yielding anywhere from what, four to five percent right now. Yeah. Low fours. Yeah. I remember when I started in the industry in ninety nine, the average yield on uh, like a high yield bond fund. And I'm not exaggerating was like in the like 11 to 12% range. Mm -hmm. And it's just crazy now how, you know, people are like, oh, you know, this company's not gonna be able to afford 6% yields. It's like, give me a break. If they can't afford 6% yields, something's really wrong with the company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I mean. Exactly, yeah. My two cents. Yeah. But listeners, the reason I'm bringing this up, high yield, something we watch, you're gonna hear more about this, tell on the markets. Okay. Yep, absolutely. All right. My next thing is forward looking performance when sentiment is this bearish. So I love data like this. 
because typically when sentiment is this bearish, you've already sold. You got cash on the sidelines. You're looking like everybody else when you're going to get back into the market. Mm -hmm. And so it's an opposite game of musical chairs. And this is, you know, the two guiding emotions in finance, right? Fear and greed. You now have this aspect where fear is so high that if you're that fearful, you've tactically adjusted your portfolio and most likely your equity portion or positioning is less than it has been. Mm -hmm. Hence, you have dry powder. And what does it take to push stock prices higher? Demand, and you need cash to do it. And it's my sense that it's that way right now. Mm -hmm. And everyone I feel on Wall Street's looking around, they're like, like early December, okay, who, who, who's gonna buy before the end of the year? And it starts that money coming right back into the market. Mm -hmm. So what Bespoke did is they put some stats behind this, Nick, about sentiment. Now this data in this chart, which is on our show notes, goes back to the year 2006. So it is pretty diverse, okay? Now what you're gonna show is we are at the lowest point since April of 2020. What happened in April of 2020, Nick? Lowest level. Lowest level. We were coming right out. The market was starting to recover from the COVID sell-off in February and March of 2020, mm -hmm. okay? Their data going back to 2006 says one month after market sentiment is this bearish, the average return, about 1%, and it's positive about two-thirds of the time. You go out to three months later for the S&P 500, on average, the market is up 2.5% roughly, mm -hmm. and it's positive 72% of the time. You go six months out when bearish indicators are this bad, the average gain for the S&P is a little bit shy of 5%, and it's positive 74% of the time. And you go one year out, the average return for the S&P when things are this low on a sentiment basis, 9.5%, and it's positive 80% of the time. So here's my comments to you. There may not be blood in the streets quite yet, but investors have come extremely close to throwing in the towel. From a sentiment standpoint, it feels that way. Combining the net bullish sentiment readings from the leading sentiment surveys show that investor sentiment has not been this negative since the weeks coming out of COVID, like I mentioned earlier. Looking on the bright side, I like contrarian sentiment indicators like this to help me as a data point to quote unquote, find the bottom. In prior periods over the last 15 years when bullishness was this low, the forward returns tend to be better than the average. Your comment. I think that last point needs to be said again so listeners don't miss it, which is you know what, what you just said. I'm gonna just repeat it for Go listeners. Go ahead, please. In the prior periods over the last 15 years, when bullishness was this low, the forward returns tend to be better than the average. That's right. And so, you know, the comment that comes into my mind, when it feels comfortable to invest, the easy money's been made. Absolutely. And I'm not saying all <laughs> the money's been made, right? Yeah. The easy money has been made, right? Yes. Where people tend to make larger forward-looking returns is hitting the buy button in times where it doesn't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm not insinuating now is the time to go all in. What I'm insinuating is that looking at the data sets, it tends to make more sense to buy when there's quote unquote blood in the streets. But why don't people do it? It's not comfortable. You have uncertainty. The market has to climb that wall of worry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for listeners, you know, think about 
I mean, the most recent one is obviously COVID, but you think about these massive pullbacks in the market throughout market history, and you just look at the S&P on a chart, and you can clearly see, oh, that was a massive pullback. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're talking about, and that's what this is this is saying, is when you have all these, you know, these sentiment reports that are showing fear, fear in the market, there's a lot of opportunity, too. Right. Absolutely. Risk and reward. Absolutely. And, and that's what this because is what happens to. is, is there, there, there's a disconnection between underlying fundamentals of stocks and what their stock prices are representing. Mm-hmm. And I sent you a piece of research yesterday that showed all these earnings beats, these raising mm-hmm. of guidance. And it just shows you how off or how bearish people are right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I got one more to add to this. I'm going to turn it over to you. Another piece of research from Bespoke, and this part of their research note on January 28th was titled, Tackling the Question of, Well, Is the Bull Market Over? You turn on a lot of the financial news networks right now, what's the conversation topic? Like every other good correction in the market. Is this the beginning of another 07, 08? Is this the beginning of another... 2000.com bust that takes the NASDAQ down peak to bottom 80%. It increases their viewership and it increases their clicks, which is why they, they do course. that. Of course. Just to clarify. I for love listeners. that. So I'm going to put some data behind this. Hard data. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, listeners, the definition of a correction is a high watermark to bottom sell off of 10%. That's the Wall Street's definition, Nick, as you know, of a correction, okay? So what Bespoke did is they went and they looked at the SPY, which is an exchange-traded fund that tracks the S&P 500 index, okay? And they looked at 10% declines going back to 1997. I didn't count them, but there's probably about 20 data sets here. Sound reasonable? Yeah. Okay. Maybe more. So what it does is it looks and says after it bottoms, what is the average forward-looking return one year later? What is it five years later? And then what's that corresponding five-year average? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this includes periods of the great financial crisis. It includes the periods of the dot-com bust. Okay. The sure average one-year forward-looking return after a correction in the market, 13.41%. That is above average Mm -hmm. for equity returns, as we were discussing in the prior data point about sentiment. Mm -hmm. You connecting the tea leaves yet? I am. All right, here we go. (laughs) Five-year total return, I'll give the annualized in a minute, 61.38%. The equivalent annualized compounding rate of return, 9.11%. And I'm bringing it back, Jenna. That's not bearish. Okay? (laughs) And I think when you look at periods of the market, and this is where the rubber hits the road for me, investors have to remember you have to endure times like this to earn returns that stocks and equities produce over the long term. If it was nice, even, steady returns, month after month, quarter after quarter, the efficiencies of the market would be completely there and the returns would be nowhere near what they are for equities. Right. So what do you have to sacrifice, Nick? You have to sacrifice volatility, Mm -hmm. times when it doesn't feel comfortable to invest. 
And guess what? You're paying the piper in January. Yeah. I'm sorry to tell you, yeah. it sucks. But you know what? As long as you own good quality investments, in my opinion, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Take a deep breath, and in five years, uh, historically speaking, you will be just fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. You know, Mark's going to listen to this podcast, Jenna, and he's going to be like, Matt was on a soapbox again. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Nick, I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, I just want to I want to follow up with a couple of points on on everything uh, with what you've what you've been talking about, which is it kind of goes back to that last line in your previous tweet, which is, you know, a lot of times when you have these pullback in Jan this pullback in January, you know, 2020, any kind of correction in the market, it's natural for people to feel that fear and that angst because when you look at your portfolio, you've lost, oh, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of money. It, regardless of the value how, of the regardless account, regardless of the value of the account, it's a lot of money for everyone, right? Because that's, right. that's your money. That's right. You lost a lot of it. But take take a look at these show notes because it will make you feel a lot better, particularly this last one that you're talking about. You Absolutely. Know, when you have these max declines, I mean, you know, we mentioned, you know, the NASDAQ right here today is down 7%. Um, year to date, year, year to date. Right. So when you have these big declines, this chart, there's a lot of data, a lot of years in there. So yeah, and it, I remember, it's not the end of the world. Historically speaking, you'll be just fine. And it's way better than keeping that money in the bank. That's right. Because I think long term, two points I want to make to that. I'm just going to say it. What are people's alternatives to get these types of returns over the long term? There's really not much there, that makes sense. There's not much that's feasible. That's right. And then the thing on top of it that I'll say is, I know it's not comfortable, but again, that is the sacrifice mm -hmm. you have to make. You can't have one without the other. Right, exactly. You can't, yeah, you can't. I mean, if you could put it in your bank and get these returns, everyone would do it. That's right. Right. But they're not there. But they're not there. You know, I th think I earn a couple basis points on, on my cash you're lucky. in the bank. Right. So, uh, not not much there. So I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to the jobs and I'll make this one quick since I've already kind of gone on my soapbox on jobs, so to speak. All right. We need to get soapboxes, uh, man. Like I'm talking old school soapboxes. Yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, this this research comes from Compound Advisors. Um, help me with his name. Charlie. Charlie Bellello. Thank you. Charlie Bellello. Um, he's awesome. Some, yeah, he's awesome. He has some great research. And, and I'll just tell listeners again, check out the chart. It says a lot. Uh, he talks about the payroll release, which we've already talked about. But, but the line I want to read is, in March, of, uh, in March and April of 2020, 22 million jobs were lost. 22 million. 22 million. Since then, 19.1 million jobs have been added back. I don't think anyone saw that coming. If, if we pulled people in March and April of 2020 and we said, how long is it going to take to make a majority of these jobs back? People would not have said less than two years. No, I wasn't saying less than two years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and, and the, I think the title on this was, you know, is this the greatest jobs comeback in history? Um, and this chart says a lot. And then it continues with uh, another chart. So there's two charts for this one. So you get a oh, you get a buy one get one. I like this. Uh, <laughs> and and Charlie continues and he says the good news for anyone who's still unemployed. 
There's nearly 11 million job openings in the U.S., which exceeds the number of unemployed persons by 4.6 million. That's which is, amazing. Which is a record high. That's amazing. Yeah. You, so, know what this, you know what this means when I see this type of stuff? We need some immigration, baby. We need to get some people <laughs> in this country. We need to get them to work. Well, yeah. Let's get this economic engine. I'm talking. Let's take it from third to fourth gear. Hey, I'm, I'm into that. I'm into That's that. what comes to my mind. But, but what... What's going on with these charts and what we've talked about, you know, there's two sides of what we've talked about on this podcast is, you know, the fear in the market, the sell off, the panic, what's going on. But a lot of the data points that we've talked about and that listeners can look, look at in the show notes for themselves, very strong economy. And why would people be hiring? They need them. Their business is good. Exactly. That's not bearish. Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not hiring just for the sake of hiring. You're not. No, you need <laughs> it. You, 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 your company needs it because it's performing. Exactly. So the next, the next one I have is, is kind of coming back to fundamentals of the market. And it's checking in on earnings season. This is also from Charlie, Charlie Baleo. Oh, this is going to get me going, I think. Compound Advisors. And you this is going to get, you, this this is gonna get you going. I already knew when you were talking earlier about, you know, when you think about the strength of these companies and you think about the fundamentals and you think about what you were referencing to me with, with sending yesterday about all the corporates beating earnings. I already apologized to Jenna. I'm going to get going on this. If, go. This is going to be good. And this is one where I'm not going to be able to do it justice. Uh, the chart, the chart does it for me. Um, but it's just a chart of the S and P 500 EPS quarterly. Um, and, Charlie says, overall, with 67% of the companies reported, S&P 500 earnings are coming in ahead of estimates and on pace for another record high. And another you, record high. Another record high. And so if you look at this chart, you can, you can kind of see the trend since it, it goes from 2009 up to 2021. And so you can see that linear progression and how we're kind of coming back into to that linear progression. If anything, we're actually a little bit above it, which just shows... Um, the amazing innovation of of capitalist uh, of or I should say of capitalism in in these corporations. Uh, it, it's incredible to see this comeback with everything that's been going on in the past six months, past year, and to see these numbers where they are today. I mean, that really speaks to how in- incredible some of these companies are to be able to pull that off. So beginning kind of my next rant okay here we go here we go listeners buckle in (laughs) do you know what really grinds my gears it just really gets to my core okay (laughs) is when someone will make the comment well matt how can you be so bearish look at everything going on out there right and you look at the underlying fundamentals how can you be so bearish or bullish i'm sorry how can i be so bullish when things are so bad out in society Okay. okay And I look at these raw statistics, okay? Earnings. That's a fact, Jack. Okay? So in 2020, in January, you had earnings on a quarterly basis in the teens. Mm-hmm. Okay? They are now on a quarterly basis in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So when someone says, oh, well, XYZ stock or XYZ equity index is up so much since 2020, it's not supported by the fundamentals. That really gets me going because they obviously have not done their homework. Mm -hmm. So that is 
a big misperception right now in the market that, in my opinion, over the long term, stock prices tend to follow earnings, mm -hmm. earnings growth. As they should. That As makes sense, they should. Right? So when you see this massive move in actual earnings of S&P 500 companies, and someone says, well, it's not supported with the huge gains you've seen the last two years. Mm -hmm. That is blatantly false. Yep. And so the point I want to make here is this is a time in the market that I feel very strongly that people need to be looking at the stocks that they own and they need to be asking this question. Is this company going to be able to continue earnings growth when the supply chain normalizes? Mm -hmm. Okay, because there are a lot of stocks in the S&P where their earnings might be artificially inflated because they're able to get prices that are abnormally high right now. Mm -hmm. And an example would be anything that's inflationary sensitive. And you yeah. can kind of go down the line, you know, in that's the concern that I have is that there will be, in my personal opinion, areas of the market, stocks of the market that will continue to have that top line and bottom line growth on their revenue and net earnings. Mm -hmm. And there's others where they still might be producing a thousand widgets a month, but the price they get for those thousand widgets as the supply chain normalizes, you have more supply come on the market, prices come down, that's going to affect their bottom line mm -hmm. earnings. Yep. And so I want to throw this out there that we are moving more and more to a stock picker's market. Not all stocks, not all sectors are created equal. Nope. I think what has happened is, is last couple of years, that tide has come in. It's lifted all boats. And I think you're in the midst of starting to see the tide roll out. And you're going to see who's exposed and who's not. Right. Who will not be averaging these types of prices. Right. Exactly. And so with that being said, don't listeners and, and viewers don't fall into this camp that, well, how can the market sustain these gains? The earnings are showing you that they are. Yeah. Check out this chart. Oh my gosh. This, it is, will, it will this is a nice looking chart. It will ease the mind of anyone who's worried about valuations in the market. If you look at this chart and just, just take a look. You know, it's like funny. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, um, talk to clients and they might make a comment, hey, you bought XYZ stock and it's it's near a 52-week high. Why did you do that? And, you know, if Mark were here, you know what he would say? It's had a 52-week high for a reason. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry, Jenna. Soapbox time. I'm two <laughs> for two today. Two for two. All right, so I'm going to switch gears and talk about something different, which I know is is on the minds of a lot of listeners and a lot of consumers and, and people in the market, and um, it's tightness in the commodities market. Yep. Now, this is a tweet I saw. It's from Liz Ann Saunders. She is the chief investment strategist uh, at Charles Schwab. She produces good stuff. She does. She does. Um, and people might have seen her on, on some talk shows. I think she shows up on shows every now and she's then. She's on Bloomberg a lot. Is she? I okay. think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know she's been on CNBC before. But um, and this is a tweet from yesterday, actually. Fresh. And, yeah, fresh. Very fresh for listeners. Half the press. And it comes with a chart as well. And it says, no shortages of shortages, dot, dot, dot. 
There are more commodities futures contracts trading in backwardation, in parentheses, indicating scarcity, than at any point since 1997. 19 of 28 raw materials. Now, that includes anything from, from energy to grain. Okay. Um, and what this chart shows is, is just basically a depiction of, of what she said. So there's a couple of things in there that I'm going to break down for listeners. The first one, the most obvious one is, okay, what is backwardation? Yep. Um, so backwardation is when the current price of an underlying asset is higher than the price is trading in the future market, futures market. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can occur as a result of, of high demand um, for any kind of asset or contracts that are maturing in the coming months. Um, yep. So what does this mean? Um, it, it gets down to supply and demand. Right. It gets down to a lot of what we saw in the in the supply chain with with inflation over the past couple of years. It's a similar kind of concept, but just in the commodities market. You think about energy is is the easiest example to kind of go through. But what's happened with the energy markets? And we talked about this a couple months ago on the podcast, but it has continued to go higher, you know, crude trading in the high eighties, nineties, and people talking about, Oh, is it going to go to a hundred? Is it going to pass a hundred? And a lot of, of conversations in the market. And a lot of it, it gets down to the very simple macro and microeconomics of that you learned in your, in your classes at school of supply and demand and, and the energy markets, for example, there's just not enough supply out there. And the U S uh, the U.S. E&Ps and the U.S. integrated companies aren't going to do it. They're not going to go and drill more. They're not going to go and and pump more oil, pump more oil because Wall Street has told them you guys need to, to remain capital efficient and you guys need to remain disciplined. Yes, because that's what got you in trouble the past ten years, which is why the S and P uh, energy as a percentage of the S and P fell to three percent. Yeah. So it's not coming from there. There's geopolitical issues between Russia and everything that's going on there. Stuff over in the Middle East. But there's still demand. And so your supply has been somewhat stagnant, but demand has increased, particularly as economies around the world have begun to normalize. normalize. That's right. So that's what this tweet is is pointing out, that it's not just energy. It's in a lot of areas. 19 of 28 is what she says. And you can see this chart is pretty interesting. Um, you can see it's kind of it's kind of peaked out, and so this would this would kind of go against our theme in a way of of normalization because the commodities market is so tight and everything that's going on there. But what I'd point out to to listeners is that this stuff can correct itself pretty quickly. Yes, um, my opinion with commodities is the faster it rises, the faster it falls. Exactly. High prices are the cure for high prices. High prices are the cure for high prices. A perfect example is like what we saw in the summer with with lumber. Yes. Right? We saw that I mean it was taken off and it came down pretty quick. It only took a couple of months for it to chop off I don't know 10-15%. And see what I think happens is, you know, you start to get Wall Street involved mm-hmm. and these people are buying futures contracts of which they have no intention of using the end product. No, absolutely not. So they're buying it just so they can flip it to someone else at a higher price. Mm-hmm. That within itself is a game of musical chairs. Eventually mm-hmm. along the line, someone's going to get burned, mm-hmm. right? And I think that also causes the unraveling or the normalization in prices. Exactly. Quicker. Exactly. 
yeah, you have people coming out and looking at this chart and saying, that doesn't make sense. How can I make money on it? And they go out and make money in the futures market. And yeah. Someone's left holding holding the bag. Don't get me wrong. Someone's going to take the it's, financial losses it's on It's not this. necessarily, I wouldn't call it easy money. It's very complicated and complex and difficult to analyze and do, but people do do it. Yep. And uh, so that that's an interesting one for This is interesting because in my opinion, when I start looking at some of these tea leaves of where we stand with the supply chain, right? And last week in the podcast, I talked about, you know, um, the cost to have a container ship, um, a container move from China to the U.S. or China over to Europe. And we are drastically down from the lows. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, from the highs or where they were last mm -hmm. summer. Yeah. That's a leading indicator. OK, yeah. I see stuff like this and it just tells me it's only a matter of time for supply to normalize and people that are trying to flip these futures contracts are going to get burned at exactly. some point. Yeah, they'll get burned. The market will return back to normal, but prices will so come this, down. This chart is kind of a great example of what, what we talked about earlier, where it's like, we're talking about normalization. We're not there yet. We're, we're saying, Oh, it looks like it's normalizing. It's going to take a couple quarters. This is one of those things that is not even close to normal yet. No way. And it will take a couple quarters. It Absolutely. will take some time for this to, work itself out but like this right here is is actively an issue in multiple markets is driving inflation it's driving up higher prices at the tank for consumers i mean there's a lot in there but this this kind of thing can can and, and will normalize over the next year i would agree and um you know real quick before we turn it over to the financial planning topic of the week nick do you have any comments about like oil in the upcoming driving season. I keep seeing people trying to speculate that, you know, as we normalize more and more in this post COVID environment, mm -hmm. I mean, you're seeing uh, countries around the world dropping all mandates. Um, mm -hmm. And it feels like every other day, there's another major country that's doing it. And as summer comes along, you might have a pretty robust summer traveling season. I'm not talking just airlines, but I'm also talking car driving. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is oil is trading at where it's at with anticipation that's going to be the case. So I'm wondering how much of that's priced in already. And this is purely opinionated, how much of it's priced in and how much of it's not yet. That's a great question. And from my time in the energy markets, I try very, very hard not to say not to not to respond to questions like that <laughs> now i'm trying to poke the bear right it's very difficult when you get into that thing of oh how priced in is the oil is is brand and, and wti and you know will it come down in the summer it's like oh i mean i've been on the phone with energy experts who tell me like nick this summer it's happening i'm telling you you know, the, the market's going to get in gear. It's going to realize how undervalued this space is. And, you know, there's going to be more demand and supply is going to get in control and oil is going to go up to 60. And then it stayed at 40 for six more months. <laughs> People much smarter than me. So that, that would be my response is, you know, I, I don't know how priced in it is. I think it's probably some people are pricing that in a little bit to some degree, but I think a lot of it gets down to what I talked about earlier with just simple supply and demand. And particularly with the U.S. producers, they got hammered by their investors hammered. That, that told them, you know, we want you guys to be disciplined. And you can see that in the earnings. It's, it's flowing through to some of these earnings. Yeah. 
um, where they're remaining disciplined. They're benefiting from the, from the higher crew, prices, from right? The now. Higher prices, of course, they're benefiting from it. Um, but they're they're remaining disciplined and not pulling more oil out of the ground. So there well, will be some that that get greedy. Yep. I guarantee it. Some will get greedy. They'll pump more. They'll pump more. The, we'll the, the, the comment that I'll, I'll make is just in general, I think the risk reward just for the energy sector is uh, given some of the moves in these stocks is the risk reward is higher. And so as much as you see the reward side, the risk is directly associated with it. And I'm not saying to avoid energy. I'm saying do your homework and be careful. That's that's kind of the message I want to send. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's easy to get roped into that trade right now. It looks beautiful. It looks rosy. It's, and well, it's that, like anything else. It looks like it's going to... What always gives me pause is it looks like everyone's one-sided. It's going to continue in this fashion. Demand's going to continue to go up. Supply's going to be restricted. And when I see like everyone on one side, I, I want to take the other. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, well, here's let's play this forward. This is purely hypothetical. Let's say a lot of the market has is pricing in some of this sub, summer travel season, and then a lot of the geopolitical uncertainties get sorted out, and they hike the supply, and then the U.S. producers have already made plans to pump to drill a little bit more. Not a lot, but a little bit more. What happens to the price of oil? It comes back down. Come back down. Now, all of a sudden, these earnings that we're talking about aren't as strong, and then one quarter comes, it could be it could be one or two quarters, and then these, particularly your your high beta names in the energy space, they will lose 25% of the gains that we've seen in the past year and a half. I can see that. And that's not an exaggeration as to how quick some of those small cap energy names will can come move. in. Now, I'm not talking about your big integrateds, but some of your smaller areas in the energy name, they can move, they're in the energy markets they can move that quick. I've yeah. seen it. Yeah. I mean, you were in that, you were an yeah. equity surveillance analyst in that sector. Yeah. 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 Well, before we, uh, we, we wrap up your portion of the, of the podcast, Nick, any other closing thoughts before I transition over to Taylor? No, no nothing else. I hope in, uh, listeners enjoyed it. And, uh, thanks for having me as always. Nick, you're awesome, man. <laughs> I you're, appreciate it. It's fun. I always love your viewpoints. Oh Yeah. So as we kind of transition now um, over to Taylor, I'm going to provide uh, some background on on Taylor. She's she's new to the podcast, uh, by no means new to the firm. Uh, so Taylor has worked her way up uh, through the firm. She's currently uh, a wealth advisor at the firm. She also does all of our financial planning at the firm. So full name, Taylor Ledbetter, um, grad of the Wright State University, uh, same uh, she has two degrees there. Um, one of the degrees I have, the financial services degree. She also has a degree in accounting uh, from Wright State. So Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So um, Taylor, what have you selected this week for the financial planning topic of the week for listeners? Yeah. So today I'm going to talk about tax efficient withdrawal strategies in retirement. Okay. And I think this is really important to talk about because you save your whole life, invest, and plan for retirement. But it's also important to know that just because you reach retirement age, those financial goals don't stop there. And there are still ways to maximize that income in a very tax-efficient way. Yeah, I don't think this gets enough focus, Taylor, because I think a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to retire. 
but they really don't focus on what's the most efficient way to get those withdrawals to pay your living expenses. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you selected this. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about three different strategies today and kind of give my two cents on those. You're, you're, you're the expert in this area. I'll turn it over to you. So the first one is called a traditional withdrawal strategy. Okay. And you start out by spending down those taxable accounts. So this is going to be an individual brokerage account. Anything that's taxed at a capital gain. Okay. After that account is spent down, you move on to your pre-tax account. So an IRA, 401k, anything that's taxed as ordinary income. Got it. And then lastly, you spend down those Roth accounts. And this allows the IRA and the Roth to grow more tax efficiently. Yep. But the problem with this strategy is that it doesn't minimize required minimum distributions because those traditional IRA assets are left untouched in the beginning of retirement. So you're left with a very large IRA combined with a high RMD, which creates high taxes. Yep. And there's also no tax diversification either because you're depleting one account at a time and you're only left with a Roth. And that's what you see traditionally kind of occur, correct? Yeah, it's, it's a very simplistic strategy, but personally not my favorite. Okay. So the next strategy is called a proportional approach strategy. All right. This draws a little bit of money from your IRA early on in retirement so that the account is smaller in later years while also drawing a little bit from a taxable account so your tax brackets aren't too high. So these IRA assets remain lower throughout this strategy, while taxable assets remain a little bit higher than they are in the traditional approach. Makes sense. This lowers RMDs in later years, and generally you spread out that tax diversification over retirement. I mean, that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, I like that, I think, better than the traditional strategy. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, with RMD age getting pushed back to 72, I think you're seeing a lot of people have these higher balances in their 70s, and all of a sudden you hit your 80s. I mean, we got clients sometimes that have six-figure RMDs. Mm -hmm. And as you were indicating, that's ordinary income. There's mm -hmm. really no tax strategy Taylor, mm -hmm. that you'd be able to advise them to shelter that. There's nothing yeah, they can do. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. You got to mm -hmm. pay the piper at that point. Yep, yep, and you have no option. And that's why I think the proportional approach strategy is more attractive. Mm -hmm. Makes I sense? I agree. And I also think everybody's situation is so individualistic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's not one strategy that's right for everybody. It really just depends on your financial situation too. Yeah, and you know, one thing that can come into play is say age difference of spouses. So if you have a younger spouse who's gonna inherit that account, you might recommend a different withdrawal strategy than if that weren't the case. I mean, there's a lot mm -hmm. of variables that go into that. Yep, exactly. And you know, you could, you may or may not be taking social security yet. Good point. You, you know, you may not be at an RMD age. So other income sources is also, I think, a factor to consider. Okay, that's good. The last strategy is Personally, my favorite, it's called the Roth Conversion Withdrawal Strategy. Okay. And the idea for this is to convert some of that pre-tax IRA money into your Roth IRA in the early years of retirement. 
This takes advantage of your lower tax brackets because you may not be taking Social Security yet. Good point. And you're not at an RMD age. And while you're making this conversion, you live off of your taxable account and pay any additional taxes generated from the conversion from your taxable account. And you want to convert just enough so that you're not bumped up into the next tax bracket. I see you in meetings talk more and more about this strategy to clients. Mm -hmm. I really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like this strategy and it's actually something I've, I've utilized for clients in the past. It makes a lot of sense. And so when you do that Roth conversion, you're not forced to pay the tax by taking more money out of the traditional IRA. Mm -hmm. You can pay, quote unquote, the tax bill from after-tax assets, mm -hmm. hence you're lowering that taxable income by doing so. Yeah, and that's the advantage. That's the ideal situation. You could always pay those taxes from the amount that you're converting, mm -hmm. but that just means you'll have less assets to grow in that in the Roth, Roth IRA. Exactly. So ideally, it'd be great if you could take those taxes from a taxable account, but if not, it's not the end of the world. Okay. My Anything opinion. else regarding this, uh, the Roth conversion strategy? Um, no, not necessarily. I just, like I said, I think that there are factors to consider when picking a strategy for you. Um, one could be those available taxable assets, okay. because like I just mentioned in the Roth strategy, you use those taxable assets to pay those taxes on the conversion. Um, the size of the pre-tax account also matters because... Mm -hmm. If you have a really low pre-tax account, you don't have much to, to convert. Or if you have, you know, a really high pre-tax account, then a conversion may be best for you. Yeah, and thinking about the available taxable assets, one thing I would love to have you back on uh, to discuss is taxation of capital gains. Mm -hmm. Because I believe it is a misconception by the investing public that no matter what tax bracket you're in, people keep hearing that they're taxed at 20% mm -hmm. for long-term capital gains. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily accurate. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those tax rates are actually 0%, 15%, and 20%, all depending on your income. And I think there's a lot of people, Taylor, that actually don't fall into the 20% mm -hmm. range, and they just don't know it. Yeah, I see more people in the in the 0% range and a few in the 15% range. Isn't that something? Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I don't think that's talked enough about and so I want to have you back on and I want to focus specifically on that topic as well. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Because think about that. If you're able to sell a highly appreciated asset with no taxable gain, mm -hmm. use that to pay your Roth conversion tax bill. Mm -hmm. That's a home run. Yeah. And see, that's the type of stuff from a financial planning standpoint that I think does not get enough talk or interest from the investing public. Mm hmm. I think it's a lot more fun to talk about mm -hmm. how this stock is performing, what the index is doing, um, talk about the equity markets. Mm -hmm. Not enough time goes into these withdrawal strategies for retirees. Yeah. And that's why I chose this topic is because I think it is super important, but it's not thought about enough. It's kind of like an afterthought. Mm -hmm. It feels exactly. like it in our industry in general. Mm -hmm. Any Anything else on the, on the factors for your strategy? Um... Other, just other income sources, like I mentioned, Social Security, um, maybe if you have a pension, that's all also something to consider. And your legacy goals, you know, who you plan on 
leaving these accounts to, maybe your, your time horizon. There's, there's just many factors to consider. So when talking about legacy goals, your last point, this is a big one for me that I talk to clients about because what I'll tell them is the most efficient way to leave money to the next generation is through that Roth account mm -hmm. because you're going to have all this um, compounding growth while you're still with us. And when that money goes to the next generation, yes, they're going to have to withdraw it within a 10 year period. But guess what? Mm -hmm. All those withdrawals are completely tax free. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of clients are realizing that as they get older, most likely their children are going to be in their prime working years or right near that. Hence, their tax bracket is going to be higher than theirs. And when that money goes to the next generation and they start taking withdrawals and it comes out completely tax free, that is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And that would be one advantage for doing the Roth conversion is if you have some heirs you plan to leave that money to, like you said, if they're in their highest paying years, it's best to have that money in a Roth versus a traditional IRA. The other thing that comes to mind with this, Taylor, is when I talk to clients about this aspect and we talk about, okay, let's make this Roth IRA more of a priority to pass wealth to the next generation, I think I usually transition the conversation to what the level of risk should be in that account. Mm -hmm. And I, I posture the conversation towards, we need to be thinking of investing that Roth IRA more like your kids would. Mm -hmm. rather than how you would at the age of 75, 80, or 85. Yeah, more aggressive. More aggressive. Mm -hmm. Because if your mindset is passing wealth on to the next generation, I'm not going to touch this account. I'm financially stable. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to walk down that road and consider having that account more aggressive mm -hmm. because we're treating it as if it's the risk tolerance, time horizon goals of the child mm -hmm. rather than the parent. Yeah. And that's a good point to add too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's one thing that I like to bring up in those meetings as I can start to identify what assets that most likely the parents aren't going to spend or need during their lifetime. Then we need to readjust the level of aggressiveness in that account then that matches who the beneficiary is. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Yep. And typically you see, you know, Roth accounts maybe being one of the last accounts you withdraw from. So that has time to grow tax-free. So, you know, allocating it as aggressive is very advantageous. Absolutely. So the one thing I'll kind of um, finish up on the Roth topic, this would be a good year. I would recommend people tailor review their beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. So I know as a practice, this is going to be a big push for us and there might not be any changes, but just making sure you got contingents listed. I mean, this is a time, this would be a good year to go through, check who's listed on your beneficiaries mm -hmm. and, and make sure it's the people you want it to be. Maybe mm -hmm. you've had some grandkids and maybe you want to list them for 5% of the Roth. I mean, there's mm -hmm. things that you could maybe incorporate there mm -hmm. that you weren't thinking about, say, five or 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think adding primaries and contingents are one of the most important things that you can do. And I just don't think it's looked at enough. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, well, that's account open. It's fine. Yeah. Right. And they never really review those beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. So that's something else that comes into mind, especially with thinking of legacy asset transition. You know, these are direct transfer products. They do not. If you have someone physically listed, mm -hmm. they don't go through the probate process. Mm -hmm. So it's up to you to make sure you have the right beneficiaries listed that most likely they're probably not going to go through your will or trust, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Very, very important. 
any other uh, items you'd like to add to this topic? Um, no, I think we, we covered all the base, basic points. Well, either next week or the week after, we'll check your availability. I want you to come back and I want you to talk about taxation on, uh, on, on selling stock in an after-tax account. Yeah, that'd Because be again, I think that perception is there. It's 20% and, mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily the fact. No, not normally. <laughs> Love it. Well, Taylor, thank you for being our special guest this week on the financial planning topic of the week. You're an absolute rock star. Appreciate everything you do for the mm -hmm. firm. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you listeners for episode, listening to episode 136 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.